Please take your scriptures and open them to Hebrews chapter 4. It's on page 1189 of the Pew Bible. going to be looking at the first 13 verses of that chapter. Each year, CEO of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, prints his first letter to shareholders at the beginning of the annual report. The original letter in 1997 outlines nine ways Amazon will demonstrate their long-term approach to business. And he included this statement. We will continue to make investment decisions in light of long-term market leadership considerations rather than short-term profitability or short-term Wall Street reactions. Twenty years later, this commitment to long-term thinking has made Amazon one of the most sought-after stocks on the exchange, and Jeff Bezos just became the richest man in the world. In business, long-term thinking pays great dividends, and the writer of the Hebrews is saying the exact same thing today in our text. Your day-to-day Christian life will be well-served if you think long-term. When things get rough in this life, and they will, this life is tough. Long-term thinking is the way to persevere through it. Think of where you're going. Think of where you will be forever. Think of God's promised inheritance. What our text is saying is, consider your future rest. Look with me at the first verse in chapter 4. The writer of the Hebrews starts out, Therefore, While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to have reached it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, As he has said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again, he appointed a certain day, today, saying through David, 
so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Father God, I pray that you will send your spirit here to circumcise our hearts as your word is opened up. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the concluding argument to a rather lengthy argument. It starts back in chapter 3, verse 1. Okay, so 3, verse 1 to four verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 13 is, is one thought unit, and we've broken it up into three sermons here. He starts out in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and says to his readers, Consider Christ. Keep your eyes focused on Christ. Remember what Christ has done for you. Remember how, how superior, and he goes on to explain this, how superior Christ is to Moses, the person that they were tempted to go back to. Don't return, if you remember a couple weeks ago, don't return to your beloved doctor when he points you to the surgeon that is going to save your life. Then he gives a stern warning starting in in chapter 3, verse 7 through 19, where he says, okay, consider Christ, consider the consequences. Consider the consequences of, of leaving Christ. And that's what we talked about last week. Consider the consequences of hardening your heart towards Christ. And those consequences, he met it out, are, are death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. Being apart and alone forever. And then here he comes back in these 13 verses, and he says, consider the future. Consider the future. Consider what hardening your hearts forfeits. Consider what trust in Christ's promises benefits eternal life, the promised rest, rest. And that's the main point. If I can say it in one sentence, look forward to your future rest in order to preserve your life now. Consider looking to your future rest in order to preserve your life. The word rest is used 10 times in these 13 verses. I hope you picked up on that. A very easy way to do Bible study. One of the things you have to look for are repeated words. That's a very easy way to go through Bible study. What is repeated is important, is central. And he repeats rest 10 times in 13 verses. 
This rest is a Greek word that is translated basically meaning what it says here. Cease from work. Cease from work. Rest from action. Rest from your labor. Cease exertion. Applied to the context here of salvation that the author is talking about, it means freedom from any doubt or worry or guilt or fear. That's rest. It means an inward peace that transcends all understanding, to quote Paul. That's part of rest. Spiritual rest means trusting fully that God will never fail you. Trusting fully that God has you. That you can depend on him for everything. That he is all you will ever need. That he has a hold of you and he's not going to let go of you. That's rest. As John MacArthur writes, God rest is freedom from running from philosophy to philosophy, from religion to religion, from lifestyle to lifestyle. We are freed from being tossed about by every wind of doctrine, every idea, every fad that blows our way. In Christ, we are established, we are grounded, we are rooted, we are immovable, he writes. That is resting in Christ. And that rest is promised to each and every believer that places their faith in Jesus Christ. Every person that does not harden their hearts as the Israelites did. That's his argument. Every person that chooses Christ and not the world at critical moments of your life. Every person that perseveres to the end is promised rest. That's what... The first verse is telling us, it says, therefore, if you look there, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Entering a place that, as Paul said, no, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor human mind has conceived. That is promised to us as believers in Christ. There's a wealthy man who was on his deathbed and he negotiated with God to allow him to bring some earthly treasures with him to heaven. In order to teach him a valuable lesson, he, God allowed that. And the rich man eventually died. And he arrived at the pearly gates with two huge suitcases packed full of gold bullion bars. St. Peter said, sorry, you know the rules. Can't take it with you. The man protested and said, no, no, no. I I, I negotiated with God. I can bring these with me. And St. Peter checked and lo and behold, he found out that this one man is the exception. And he took the man's suitcase and opened it up. Peter looked up quizzically and said, you brought pavement? Now, it's a silly story, but it makes us perhaps ponder a little bit how much greater the promised rest is going to be, how much greater heaven is going to be than this earth, that anything this earth has to offer, and it offers all the time, and it says, this will fulfill you. 
Even the most valuable and beautiful things here are pavement in comparison to the littlest thing in heaven. And heaven is a place you want to go, brothers and sisters. It's a place you want to go to. We will worship without distraction. We will serve without exhaustion. We will learn without fear. We will learn without fatigue. We will fellowship without fear. There's always fear when you come into a relationship, isn't there? We will rest without boredom. We will labor without earning. Ponder that one for a minute. Labor without earning. The rest we will experience will be a freedom from the drive to save ourselves. I don't know if you're anything like me, but I'm always, in my heart, trying to earn favor with God. Now, I read scripture and I'm pastor. I know I can't do that, but my heart doesn't. I'm always trying to turn his frown to a smile. If I do this, it will please you, right? It's just our normal hearts. That's, our, that's the heart we're born with. In heaven, there will be no more self-effort, no more self-interested motivations, no more works righteousness labor. No more. That's kind of what the author is trying to get at in verse 4 when he talks about Genesis 2 where he says, for somewhere it was spoken in the seventh day this way that God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Our rest will, in a sense, okay, in a sense be like God's rest. We'll finally be able to rest in our salvation and, and not have the doubt and worry that, am I really saved? We'll really be there. We'll be able to live in the completed work in Christ, you know, we preach every single week here. And I preach it to myself, brothers and sisters, that Christ's work is done. It's completed. There's nothing you can add to it yet. As soon as I leave this pulpit, there's a part of my heart that doesn't believe that. That's the it-is-finished type of rest that we will have someday. We should be able to experience that type of rest right now in the gospel. We should. That's what, that's what scripture tells us. You should have that great exhale that are, there's no more inhale. It's like done. But our flesh gets in the way, doesn't it? We think we can change God and his his view of us, some little bit. We think we can still earn some favor with God by being obedient. When it's, the obedience is accomplished already. That's the gospel. Christ said it is finished on the cross. On the cross. He already lived that perfect life for you. And in my discipleship group, we're learning about the passive righteousness of, of Christ or the, or the received righteousness of Christ. That's what this means. You're free from, from trying to earn salvation because it's given to you. You're free from trying to 
do any kind of works to earn anything in God because Christ earned it already by his perfectly lived life. We should experience rest in the gospel because the gospel promises complete and utter forgiveness of your sins. Complete and utter forgiveness of your sins. You are freed from the guilt of sin. Past, present, and future. Thirdly, we should experience this gospel rest now because he took the penalty for those sins. He died the death you and I deserve. He willingly went to the cross and allowed God's full wrath to be revealed onto his body. Thus, we are free to live these fearless type of lives because God's wrath, it's like he he put it all on Christ and he has no wrath left for you and me. No wrath. And we should experience gospel rest fourthly because Christ rose from the dead. means that this promised rest that the Hebrew author is talking about is guaranteed to believers. And this is the actual rest that the gospel promises right now. People living in and enjoying God's protective presence, resting from our fleshly toil and labor. Let me repeat that. God's rest right now can be experienced in the gospel. God's people living in and enjoying God's protective presence and resting from their fleshly toil and labor. That's that's the promised rest. That was God's plan all along for his people. And what's really cool about Scripture and scripture is cool, is that God left breadcrumbs along the way for God's people to understand that rest, for them to to experience a foretaste, if you will, of this promised rest that he talks about from the beginning. He talks about these types of rest, what it will be like, look like, feel like, And the author mentions two of them in verses 6 through 9. If you look at verses 6 through 9 there, it says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter into it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words that we already quoted, God, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Two breadcrumbs right there. First, he says there was a promised rest, a promised land that was meant to be a taste of what the future promised rest would be like. Canaan was never meant to be an end's. The promised land was never meant to be an ends by God. It was a type pointing forward to what really God's rest is. The goal of God and his people when they left Egypt was the promised land, right? You have slavery in Egypt, 
freedom from bondage, wandering in a difficult desert into the promised land. And that was meant to be a picture of our spiritual life. And Canaan was meant to foreshadow God's ultimate promised rest. Think about it. It was pictured as idyllic, wasn't it, in the Old Testament? When they went in, they came back out and they said, wow, you're not going to believe this place. I mean, there's, there's grapes everywhere. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, right? This land was so wonderful that their eye had not seen nor ear heard how wonderful it was. Canaan was, think about it, an instant inheritance. You remember when you, they came back and, and God promised them, he said, you know what, you're going to inherit wells you didn't dig, Vineyards you didn't plant, fruit trees and olive trees, that the fruit is ripe and you can just start picking and eating. That's pretty wonderful. The promised land was safe. It had borders to be protected. This was ours. Think about it. It was it was a place where they were a destination where they were to settle. God's people being under God's rule in God's place. That's the promised rest. And for the Jew, it was wonderful. But it was never intended to be the final destination. It was a symbolic pointer to something greater, a greater promised rest. And that's the point the author is making in in verse 8 to the reader. For those Jews who are so tempted to look back and go, wasn't that, that was where we, it was great. Aren't we all as a people tempted to look back and go, it would be great if we could go back. I do that in my life. We do that as a culture. We look back, at least some of us do, but in general, post-World War II America for 20 years was great. It was the golden age. You know, things were simpler. Life was understood. You know, the, 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 the moral culture was intact. People knew rights and wrongs. It was more black and white, less grays. Prosperity. Jobs for everybody. They're building homes for everybody. It's a golden age. And we look back at that and we go, oh, can't we go back to that? That's how the Jews were thinking about the promised land. Can't we just go back to that? That would be wonderful. It was their goal, it was their destination, it was the place they wanted to return to, and by the way, still do. But I think Scripture tells us that that's not the rest that we're to look forward to. That's what the Hebrew is saying to these Jews. Don't look back. It was a type of rest. That promised land was, was to just be a taste. You know, get, get a taste of honey on your lips. But the honey pot is in the future. A mere physical foretaste of the spiritual rest God was planning through Jesus Christ. And that's the argument. If rest if the rest that Joshua accomplished in his conquest of Canaan was it, the writer of the Hebrews says, well then, 
then why was David writing 500 years later in Psalm 95 still talking about a future rest? The writer of Hebrews is saying, riddle me that, Batman. And why is, is the writer of Hebrews that is talking to us today still saying, there's a future rest? Keep, keep going. Don't look back. See, the ultimate protection and prosperity and security is not found in Canaan, but in Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment He's, he's, the trail of breadcrumbs ends with him. And he promises all that spiritually. He is indeed greater than Joshua. Defeating greater enemies than Joshua did. Sin, Satan, and death. God's rest is not a physical rest, but a spiritual rest. God's promised rest is not found in the promised land, but in the promised Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that, doesn't it? Those of you who are navigators, all the promises are yes in Christ. That's where the breadcrumbs end. The second foreshadow that God promises here in his rest is the Sabbath. Look at verse 9. It tells us there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The Sabbath, the Sabbath was also put there to help people understand the long game, to understand God's ultimate rest. For that was the essence of keeping the Sabbath, wasn't it? Rest. I mean, if you read the Old Testament about the Sabbath, and you can find plenty of references there, the word that is used is rest. And theologians and, and lay people alike go, what does that mean? Just tell me what that means so that I can do it. Okay, does it mean not leaving your house? Does it mean not making waiters and waitresses work? Does it mean not taking so many steps from our home? Does it mean just being with the family? Does it mean, just tell me what it is and I'll do it. It means rest. Helpful, huh? Don't work, no labor. No exertion. The Sabbath was to be different than all the other days of the week. It was to stand apart from your regular life. It was to be markedly different than all the other days of the week. Yahweh gave some guidance on what that was to look like in the Old Testament, what you were to do or not to do. It's descriptive more than prescriptive. But above all else, you were to rest over and over again in God's law. Rest. Sabbath, rest. What do you do? Rest. And God took that rest pretty seriously. Have you ever thought about that? If you go back into the Old Testament, breaking the Sabbath meant what? Death. Whoa. I mean, talk about an overreaction. You mean if I break the Sabbath law, I'm to be stoned? Yeah. 
You mean breaking the Sabbath was a capital offense? Yeah. I mean, doesn't that seem a little much? But then, as, as biblical Christians, you have to pause there. For Pete's sake, pause there and think, why would God make breaking the Sabbath a capital offense? What on earth could be in his mind, the mind of God? Have you ever thought about that? What is in the mind of God here? It's, it's a little puzzling, unless you really believe that the breadcrumbs all lead to Christ. Because if you believe that the Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ, as I think the scripture tells us it is, it begins to make a little sense. Uh, one day, his, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and I am humble in heart. And you will find your rest in me. Only in Jesus will you find rest. Only through him do you enter God's promised rest. And and if you reject Christ, if you reject that rest, what does scripture say? One of the most famous chapters in in scripture is John 3. You know, we have John 3:16, those wonderful words. I think one of the most neglected parts of John 3 is right at the end of John 3. Let me read it to you. It says this, Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. These are Jesus' words. Sounds great. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. To reject Christ means death. It comes with the death penalty. The Sabbath was meant to foreshadow the rest we have in Christ, and if you reject Christ, it means death. The writer of the Hebrews wants his audience to know that this is a life or death matter. That's why he put verse 9 in there. This is a life or death matter. And so the author is imploring his audience Persevere, endure, keep going. That's the, a major part of the rest of the text. He wants us to strive. Look at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Twelve-year-old Lee Anendez Rodriguez showed up for a family-friendly 5K race. She got in with the crowd, and when the gun went off, she started running. Rodriguez focused on putting one foot in front of the other and didn't realize until mile four, which is after 5K, that the end was nowhere in sight. Turning to another runner, she asked how much further. And when the runner told her that they were only about a third of the way there, she suddenly realized that she had started with the group doing the half marathon. I think a lot of people who accept Christ are like that. They think it's a sprint. 
They think, there's the pain. I get it. It's right there. And they don't realize it's a long obedience in the same direction. That's why the author encourages his audience, strive, persevere. King James, labor. Look at verse uh, three, uh, 6 in chapter 3. It says, We are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold on to the original confidence firm to the end. The author is encouraging them to persevere. Now, there is absolutely no disunity between resting in Christ's completed work and laboring to persevere. There is no, that is not an oxymoron. Peter told his readers, therefore, brothers, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. He's even putting it in terms of election. MacArthur, writing on this, says, A person should diligently, with intense purpose and concern, seek to secure God's rest. It is not that he can work his way to salvation, he writes, but he should diligently seek to enter God's rest by faith lest he, like the Israelites in the wilderness, lose that opportunity. So biblically, perseverance is a combination of fearful diligence. Okay? Perseverance, biblically, is fearful obedience. Think for a second about fear. I mean, back, the the whole... Backdrop of chapters 3 and 4 is Psalm 95. And that is the psalm that David is warning his flock. Careful of your hard hearts. Look at verse 1 in chapter 4. It invites us to have this same healthy fear. Therefore, while the promises of entering this rest still stand, God's promises are good, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to have reached it. Now, to be clear, this is not doubtful fear. This is not terror. But a reverential, sober realization that others have fallen, that we are weak, and that we have an enemy that, that desperately desires us to fall and not make it. Let me repeat that. It's a a reverential, sober realization, this is biblical fear, that others have fallen, that we are weak, and that we have a foe that desperately and deeply desires us to fall. That is the type of fear being talked about here. It's a humble fear. It's a humble fear. And a humble fear realizes that others have fallen away. I don't know about you, but I know people who I served in ministry with, that have fallen away. My dear friends from seminary, who I, I met with every, every, mor- every uh, morning once a week, and we would pray in, in the chapel together for our ministries, 
has fallen away. The two men that I just mentioned yes, uh, last week, Johnny Mel and, and Bob McGowan, missionaries, uh, one of them missionary, fallen away. Died in that state as far as I know. A humble field realizes that others have fallen away. A humble fear keeps in mind that we are weak. In other words, a humble fear, a biblical fear, realizes that the flesh is pretty powerful and doesn't underestimate the flesh. It means admitting that we are weak. I'm so thankful, and you should be too, brothers and sisters, that you have good elders in this church. This past week, they just challenged me and just wanted to go back over with me about my, my guidelines for meeting with women. They did that. You know who falls in ministry? People that say, that'll never happen to me. Flesh is powerful, and we are weak. And a humble fear thirdly knows that we have a very strong enemy who desperately, and is, excuse the idiom, hell-bent on us not reaching that promised rest. So we have to have a humble fear in order to persevere. In other words, think realistically, biblically. Secondly, we must also diligently obey. Have a healthy, humble fear, but also diligently obey. That's what verses 12 and 13 are all about. It seems like such a disconnect. He goes from this perseverance and striving to say in verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we give an account. Stuart Oliott in his commentary writes this, the difference between a person who apostatizes and one who perseveres is that the one who perseveres takes God's word seriously. He goes on to write, the person who receives God's word humbly, quietly, and with awe is eternally safe. But who can tell the danger to which we expose ourselves if we treat the word of God in the same way that we treat the word of men? That's how a lot of people, a lot of Christians, treat God's word. Like it's just hearing your friend speak. So how seriously do you take the word of God? Because apparently the difference between entering God's rest and not entering God's rest is how seriously you take God's word. How seriously do you take it? When you hear it, does it propel you to action? Do you have a desire to do what it says? Is there a desire to do that? In the bulletin at the end of the worship service section, right on page 2 there, we always quote James 1.22. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. James 1.22 says this, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, 
so that you deceive yourselves. You see, there are plenty of people who come to church their whole lives and hear hundreds, if not thousands, of sermons from God's Word and are never inspired, never change, doesn't have any effect on them. It's like they're inoculated from the gospel, almost. They're never inspired to do much, never inspired to sacrifice much for Christ. They go on with life much the way it has. They hear a lot from God's word, but it does very little. They may very well be deceived. Doug, you talked about it several times today. People saying they're Christian, you go, well, yeah, don't know. A lot of people say, I'm a Christian. How seriously do you take God's word? So again, I ask, how seriously do you take God's word? Because the descriptors here are kind of serious. Did you notice it? It's active. Meaning, when a believer hears it, it actually does something to you. It's razor sharp. The message translates it like a surgeon's scalpel. It's precise in what it does. And it describes it in the very next line. It says, it discerns thoughts and dissects motivations. So one way to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. By the way, I just quoted scripture. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. It's important to do. Start asking these questions. How do you react when God's word is preached? How do you react? What's the internal monologue going on when God's word comes in contact with your will in your heart? What's going on at this moment when it comes in contact? What's the internal monologue that goes on? Is it, I don't want to. If it's that, we all have that. That's our flesh reacting to the word of God. I don't want to. I don't need to is some internal monologue. It's a little bit more serious. I don't believe that it says that. Well, that could be true. You know, we're taught to go back and make sure that what is said jives with the rest of scripture. And that might be true. Or it might be a dodge. Uh, that requires too much. You ever have that internal monologue when God's word comes into contact with your heart? requires too much. That was the rich young ruler's reaction. Is it, that area of life is not that important. I don't need to concentrate on that. God thinks you do. Or is it, I don't need to address that right now. I'll wait till later. I have time. Right? Or the Hebrews says over and over again, today, 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 do it now. Or is it, I don't like to be challenged. I don't like to be admonished. I don't like to be told that I'm wrong. It's exactly the words of the Pharisees. If that is the consistent language of your heart, brother or sister, 
when you come in contact with God's word, if that's consistent, if that's the language that that goes on, there's cause for concern. Because consistently, when believers come in contact with the word of God, they're broken and humbled. That describes somebody who has the spirit of God inside them. People like Nehemiah and Joseph and Josiah go down the list. They're broken. They're repentant, like David. I mean, what makes David so great is that he wrote a psalm that was sung in worship, Psalm 51, about his sin and repentance. Holy mackerel. They're desperate for Christ. Like the woman weeping at Jesus' feet and drying his feet with their hair, or like Mary Magdalene grabbing hold of the risen Christ. They feel a biblical sense of guilt. Yeah, guilt. There's good guilt and bad guilt. When, when the word of God pricks your conscience, circumcises your heart, you go, oh, you have that moment. Like Peter, the minute the rooster cried. Believers, when they hear God's word, are spurred on towards this celestial city. They don't stop. True believers, when they come in contact with God's word and it challenges them in an area they don't want challenged, they go, it's going to be hard. Area you don't want to sacrifice in, it's going to be hard. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to work to persevere through this. They have a deep desire to finish the race. Os Guinness, in his book, Impossible People, talks about the last time he met John Stott. He writes, one of the greatest Christian leaders of the last century was John Stott, a peerless preacher, Bible teacher, evangelist, author, global leader, and friend to many. He says, I knew him over many decades, but I'll never forget my last visit to his bedside three weeks before he died. After an unforgettable hour of sharing many memories over the years, I asked him how, I would, how he would like me to pray for him. Lying weakly on his back and barely able to speak, he answered in a hoarse whisper, Pray that I will be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. That's awesome. Pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it does circumcise our hearts. It does open our minds and look into the deep recesses of our hearts. Then asks us hard questions. It demands of us hard things. But I pray for me and everyone in this room that you will give us the perseverance that we need to make it to the end, to our dying breath. Thank you, Lord.
In Jesus' name, amen.